Hello, and welcome to this episode of Fathom in Conversation, a new economics podcast. This is brought to you by Fathom Consulting, an independent research consultancy specializing in macroeconomics, geopolitics, and financial markets. In this series, titled The Rise of China, we explore the emergence of China, its extraordinary economic boom, and the impact that's had on the rest of the world. Each episode features an in-depth discussion with Fathom's team of economists, who use their knowledge and expertise to provide insights into the Chinese economy. Episode 7, Does China Challenge US Hegemony? Hello and welcome. Today we're taking a step back and looking at China's position within the global economy. I'm joined today by Kevin Lone and Flo Bayer. Hey, Andrew. Hi, Andrew. Who've written a recent research note titled, Does China Challenge US Hegemony? So far in this series, we've discussed China's emergence and the impact that's had on the rest of the world. This emergence has caused concern among many Western countries, in particular the US, and especially with relation to trade. So, Kevin, why are politicians in the US so concerned with China's emergence? Surely that ought to be a good thing. Well, I guess there's two strands to that answer, uh, one involving politics and one involving economics. Um, On the politics point first, uh, there's an existing literature by Graham Allison at Harvard uh, looking at the emergence of uh, new superpowers going back a very long time to the 15th century, what's called a Thucydides trap. Uh, And essentially what that shows is when an existing superpower is being challenged by an upstart rival, uh, it often leads to war. And you can point to to many examples where this has happened in the past. Um, And this is kind of what's playing out between the US and China. So the US had a very dominant position as the world superpower. The Chinese GDP has increased a lot, um, almost 20% of global GDP now. It's offering an alternative model, perhaps. Uh, And this is important because in some of the more recent periods or episodes, kind of with Japan's rise against the US, which didn't result in war, uh, the emerging power kind of adopted the rules and norms uh, of the existing architecture. So in Japan's case, they adopted democracy and kind of fairly open markets. Whereas in China's specific instance, um, as its economy has has grown very rapidly, uh, its political model hasn't changed much, if at all. If anything, it's gone into reverse. Um, And so what you see with the rise of China is a very material and probably seen as a a threat to the U.S. model that has kind of dominated the world essentially since the end of World War II. Um, And so a lot of Americans now, I think, are are seriously worried and concerned that China may be able to to sell this model to the rest of the world. Um, So that's the political backdrop. Um, In terms of economics, I think the U.S. is frustrated, and this spreads from both government even to business now, with some of China's domestic economic policies, so kind of rules on um, forced technology transfers, whereby foreign firms kind of strongly encouraged, to put it lightly, uh, to share some of their IP with domestic producers. Uh, these producers then are able to kind of challenge and sometimes overtake foreign producers. Uh, there's other stuff too, in terms of China has very large state-owned enterprises who receive kind of cheap financing from state-owned banks. Uh, Chinese government has a whole slew of different subsidies programs, uh, which make it very difficult for other companies to compete. And finally, there's a lot of concern too that um, 
the Chinese government protects its domestic incumbents. Uh, so for example, Facebook is unavailable in China and Google is also unavailable. Uh, in the meantime, Chinese firms have been able to grow quite largely essentially because that large and, and, and enormous market um, has been protected from foreign competition. So I guess US politicians now are seeing China as a political threat uh, and they're also seeing some of the economic tools that they're using to grow GDP uh, and give them an unfair advantage is actually reinforcing that political threat. And in terms of the Far East region, you're also seeing signs that uh, China's gaining economic clout, in particularly in terms of trade, isn't that right, Flo? Yeah, that's true. For example, the US and China have been competing for influence in Asia, economic influence in Asia. In that region, China has become the dominant trading partner. And due to China's economic size and its proximity, the US can't reasonably expect to outtrade China with these with these countries. But the real question is whether this will be limited to Asia or whether it will spread further. And I guess China's so-called Belt and Road Initiative gained a lot of attention as an attempt to expand beyond Asia. So, Kevin, what exactly is this Belt and Road Initiative? Well, the Belt and Road Initiative is uh, essentially it's a program encouraged by the government, Chinese government, to um, build infrastructure in uh, large areas of the world. And so currently there's almost 100 countries who have signed up to be a partner under the Belt and Road Initiative and around $400 billion uh, has already been spent over the years 2013 to 2018. And essentially what they are doing is building roads and highways, ports, perhaps power generation, kind of staples of infrastructure in, in lots of different countries uh, beyond Asia. Too. So that's essentially the plan and I guess the hope for in the Chinese case is to, that they're hoping to boost economic development and connectivity with lots of new, perhaps fast-growing economies. Um, if we take a step back and kind of assess it in terms of what else is it trying to achieve, and there's perhaps some foreign policy goals there too. Uh, a lot of people compare it to the Marshall Plan, which is the U.S. aid program that was um, put into place after World War II. Essentially, the U.S. gave around 1.5% of its GDP to different countries in Western Europe that were afflicted by the war. Uh, there wasn't that much in terms of conditionality attached to it. The uh, main one was don't be communist. We think it was a, a great sort of policy plan in the sense that it helped to deliver Europe from a potentially very bad economic and political equilibrium uh, to a very positive one. Uh, and the US too gained a lot in the name of strong alliances with, with many European nations. The Chinese BRI program is often seen in the same context, whether this is a way for China to help build up its network of, of friends and allies around the world. And on the raw numbers, there are close similarities. So several estimates point to around 1 trillion in BRI funding. That could be around 1.3%, so almost the exact same as the US, of China GDP, if that was delivered over five years. And again, depending on which list of countries you include as BRI recipients, it could form around the same amount in terms of domestic recipient GDP. Uh, so on the face of it, very similar, but we actually think it has a lot more in common with the rise of the British Empire. After the Industrial Revolution, the UK was the world's largest manufacturing economy, enjoyed very large trade surpluses, and some of that money had to go somewhere namely abroad. So the UK would kind of invest in foreign lands to help extract resources that would then be uh, turned into manufacturing goods and exported from the UK. China has undergone something similar. It's now the world's largest manufacturing economy and it also generates uh, sustained excess savings which we feel have to go somewhere uh, and you can see them investing in places like Angola to extract oil which then feeds into the Chinese manufacturing production chain.
So it's more really about um, economic necessity, as with the British Empire, rather than a gift or a path towards economic development, which perhaps you could see in the Marshall Plan. On that basis, since the Marshall Plan was a gift uh, and was received kindly and was extremely effective, whereas the BRI is more of a loan that people have to pay back, and oh, by the way, if you don't pay it back, the Chinese might take your ports, uh, we see it delivering far less in terms of a boost to China's standing uh, essentially around the world. Very interesting. And um, in terms of this challenge to the US hegemony, how do trade wars really fit in with that, Kevin? Well, we wrote a blog post about that, I think, Fadam. It's Friday Post, which essentially said, don't call it a trade war, uh, which is kind of drawing on some of this material um, for people who are fans of The Wire. There's a great scene where two Baltimore police detectives who are kind of fighting the war on drugs are talking to each other and one says to the other what are we really doing we're kind of not accomplishing much and the other guy says well we're you know the front line of america's war on drugs uh to which the character ellis carver responds can't really call it a war because wars end and probably with china and the u.s something similar is going to happen here so the trade war is going to come and go you're going to have restrictions on foreign investment but in the end we've entered a period probably of geostrategic rivalry which we don't see ending anytime soon Okay, so then, Flo, how do we expect this rivalry to play out? I mean, who's the most likely to come out on top? We think DS has a clear advantage on most metrics. For example, U.S. exports are much more important to the Chinese economy than vice versa. But similarly, on our own measure of export vulnerability, essentially like a gauge of how sensitive an economy is to restriction on its exports, China is more than three times more exposed to U.S. tariffs than the other way around. And on other measures too, like financial sanctions, for instance, the US has a has a clear advantage based on the US dollar being the the world's reserve currency. So the US has a clear advantage in the in the trade war, especially if it teams up with its allies like Europe or the UK. So Kevin, then um, we think the US is unlikely to lose in this dispute, but is it likely to be successful in changing China's behaviour? The existing uh, literature on sanctions, of which there's a fairly large one basically concludes that sanctions are relatively ineffective in producing desired outcomes. And so that means that the country that's imposing them uh, usually imposes them to force a change in behavior on the target. And so there's different ways to measure this, which range from around their being successful to about 2 or 3% of the time to around 30% of the time. But one of the most important things is that when they do work, they tend to be most effective in the threat phase. And so a country is threatening to impose tariffs or financial sanctions. That tends to be when the target will actually alter its behavior to prevent those sanctions from coming into place. Uh, You can see once you've imposed the sanction, it's, it's often too late. And you can see that with the example of North Korea, for example, which has been under sanction for a very long time with seemingly very little change in its behavior. And again, there's similarities with the US and China now. The president, Donald Trump, he's threatened mostly to impose very large tariffs. He has imposed some, but I think still the the biggest part is his threat to impose 25% across the board, which he's he's been very far from. Uh, And so while we await the outcome for the trade negotiations, it does seem that that threat has been enough to bring China to the table and uh, perhaps lead to a short-term deal that the US could live with too. So it sounds like China would be biting off more than it can chew if it goes headfirst into a trade war with the US. And ultimately, we don't think that China is yet ready to challenge US hegemony. And with that, we're brought to the end of our episode. This time, we've discussed geopolitical and economic tensions that have arisen from China's emergence, particularly in relation to the US. So thank you, Kevin and Flo, for joining me on this. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. Next time... We ask whether it's time for China 
to at last abandon the growth model that has served it so well in the past. Until then, why not check out Kevin and Flo's joint note to China challenge US hegemony. To read any of the material referenced in this episode or any other, go to the podcast section of our website at fathom-consulting.com where you can find the show notes. And make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on any future content. Thank you for listening to Fathom in Conversation. This podcast is brought to you by the team at Fathom Consulting, presented by me, Andrew Harris, and both edited and produced by Liara Gabay. Fathom is an independent consultancy specializing in global macroeconomics, geopolitics, and financial market research. Our economists also produce in-depth research in China, and we have built a suite of analytical indicators specifically to monitor the Chinese economy. To find out more about our research and bespoke consultancy work, go to fathom-consulting.com. If you're interested in the data side of things, check out Fathom's chart book on Refinitiv's data stream and icon platform. This is our library of over 9,000 ready-made charts containing up-to-date global, macroeconomic and financial market data. Simply type CBook into your icon search bar to find out more. From all of us here at Fathom, thanks for listening to Fathom in Conversation.